0: Carl, you have traveled far. One, One journey, journey is ended. Journey. A new One journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth-episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So, check out Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every eighth Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville every 8th Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com
1: Biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
0: Dr. Doom wears Buddy to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by the two true freaks. I am not your host, John M. Wilson. Well, actually, I am John Wilson, but I'm not your host. You see, I'm the guest host for this episode. And way back a year ago, His Excellency Magnus and I had this lengthy discussion about Man of Steel. It went so fucking long that we have had to split it into three separate episodes. So here's the second part of the discussion where Magnus and I finished talking about, well, it's a Man of Steel discussion, but we're talking about Spider-Man because that's what we do. And you'll figure out why as, as we go along. So here we go.
0: But that's uh, that's all of the Spider-Man stuff. So to get back into Man of Steel... Because
1: that's what we're here to talk about, supposedly.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, well, you know, whatever. I mean, this this podcast is it's all about you know tangents and whatnot already to begin with. So, uh, what's one more, right? Right. From here, uh, Lois uh, backtracks uh, Clark's work history, and in so doing, eventually uncovers uh, his origins in Smallville, the Kent farm. And all that stuff. Now, as part of her little process here, and we touched upon this just a while ago, that uh, as part of her her, her uh, process and all of this, she ends up um, she ends up meeting with uh, Pete Ross, and she has a uh, couple of pointed questions that she wants to ask about that whole bus crash and all that stuff. And that's the moment when the adult Pete sort of he, he makes that kind of pained expression that. Right. I don't want to go so far as to compare it to you know, asking somebody who's uh, served in the military to talk about the time that they were really in the shit. It's not quite like that, but he does make this – he has this face that it just says that this is something that he's not entirely comfortable talking about. And I get the idea that Lois has obviously said – some, uh, has said or will say something that sets Pete's mind at ease, that he becomes comfortable talking about it. In brief, if nothing else, but I get the idea that he didn't really tell her too much, nothing that she didn't already know or uh, or suspect, that there was a, br- a bus crash of some kind and that Clark was instrumental in saving a lot of people's lives. And all of that is stuff that I get the idea she knew about before she um, came to him. But I kind of have to wonder exactly how much did, did Pete really tell her and – it's unknown and it's unknowable but it just I, I don't i get the idea that he may not have completely stonewalled her but he i get the idea he didn't really give up very much either you know
1: right he he's one of the steps that leads her to clark and we get all the different stories and everything Having her go from one place to the other, there, there, we see the people telling her stories. So we get the impression he's probably over something. Yeah. I wonder if the pained expression is also because I, th- I get the feeling that the bus experience was a bit of a turning point in the life of Pete Ross. Oh yes, because obviously he was a jerk. Uh, one might even say bully before this happened. But every indication is that after this point, even whenever he's just sitting there like a frog on the couch while her mom, his mom, is is going crazy, um, and then later on whenever Clark is getting picked on, he comes along and helps Clark get up and everything. There, there. It seems to be that Pete changed.
0: Yeah, after that this was bus. that was definitely his come to Jesus moment. Yeah,
1: right. And so part of the pain is remembering who he was and the kind of person he was before he became more meek and mild mannered. Right.
0: Well, and it's
1: also, also, also also, the fact that Pete Ross knows Clark's secret.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: You know, it's a, it's played very, very differently here, but Pete Ross is the one that knows Clark's secret. And that's just really neat.
0: Yeah. And, um, that yes, that 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 did uh, play for me. That it's like the comics, but not, but sort of, but not really. I don't know. It's a uh, that's the kind of experimentation that I think you can do in these in these sorts of movies. That you're not necessarily a slave, but you can wink, you know, to, to things like that now and then. It's a different context, but it's I I just I really enjoy it. The thing that One of the like really positive things I remember people saying about uh, Lois, one of the few positive things actually that I remember people saying about Lois in uh, Superman Returns, is that moment where, you know, that little scene where she uh, backtracks the origin of the uh, electromagnetic pulse, back basically to the Vanderworth Mansion, and you know the calls that she makes, and you know, you know, you can tell that she's this is a huge part of her job right there, just making calls talking to people, uh, getting leads and stuff like that. And you can see Lois is a little bit more hands-on with that. She actually goes out in the field. She meets with people. She talks with them. She sees photographs. She shows photographs. And she gets, a, I think, a little bit more of a nuanced and richer perspective. But you also get that it's just somehow it's more satisfying. Did to you see. call it the
1: Vanderworth Mansion?
0: Yeah, or Vanderbilt or whatever it's called.
1: Like where they live?
0: Yeah, in, a, in a Superman Returns, that's where Lex... Oh, yeah, 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 I'm sorry,
1: yeah, yeah, okay, okay, go ahead.
0: Yeah, and so, and that's where they, uh, you know, he and his uh, thugs hide out, and uh, Lois ends up, uh, Kate Bosworth ends, uh, ends up finding her way there, basically by making what I think we're supposed to interpret as a shitload of phone calls, and in Man of Steel, we see um, we see this Lois... She's uh, basically going out into the field. She's interviewing people, and you know, she's uh, you know basically building her story out that way. All of this as sort of, I don't know. It's almost like this sort of Dick Tracy thing that she does, and then eventually that leads her to Kansas. And so, what I think we can interpret th- from this, and you know, what I could be wrong, but what I think we can interpret from this, especially based on you know goings on with Zod later on in the movie is this process took Lois probably a couple of weeks uh, to get finished up. And that kind of tallies with, you know, Clark hanging around. I don't want to call it the fortress, but he's hanging around with the AI jor mm-hmm. And then also the amount of time it would take, even at warp speed, for uh, Zod to make his way to Earth. The timeline there actually works out rather nicely, or at least convincingly. Like, I don't know how accurate that is, but it, it's believable enough. You know that if all of this happens in less than 48 hours, you've got a little bit of trouble there. Whereas if it takes Lois – just, just to put a number on it, let's say three weeks uh, between the time uh, Clark rescues her on the ship uh, in uh, Canada and then the, uh, and from there, three weeks to make her way to Kansas and uh, onto uh, Ma Ken's doorstep, that gives all the other participants in the story time to do what they need to do.
1: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, which is kind of weird because usually I clue into that sort of thing. But the geography of this film is all over the place and people need time to travel from one point to another, which means this film, I mean, just the A plot, just just from Clark on the boat to the end of things, we're probably looking at a month or two of time.
0: Um. Yeah. I, and I find that. In fact, hell. You know what? I could see. Uh, it's not. It's. I don't think it's ever said exactly where the oil rig is located offshore. Obviously, I don't think it's ever really said. You know where that's located. But you could reasonably surmise it takes Clark at least a couple of days to get back to shore in Seattle. And so. I Just don't to know. swim. Yeah. I mean, because I'm. Maybe he can swim at super speed. I have fucking no idea, but. He – I don't know. Whatever. So the point is I find it, number one, very satisfying to see Lois doing real investigative journalism. And then number two, the fact that obviously she's good at her job. She's good at interviewing people. And I don't want to go so far as to say that she's got the same exact skills as like a police detective would. Mm -hmm. But it's very similar in that you need to know what questions to ask and how to frame your questions so as not to alienate your your mark, but still get the answers that you need. And there's a there's an art to that that I think in in an ideal world a journalist is going to be sensitive to. Now I think in actual practice what they do is they ask the most offensive questions they can, as belligerently as possible in order to get their target, and that's who they are, <laughs> in order to get their target to react and maybe punch or something like that. And maybe that's more of a paparazzi thing. I don't know, but Anyway, but the point is, you know, uh, this version of Lois. I mean, she's a she's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and looking at how she takes these tiny little pieces. I mean, what? Because when you think about it, what the fuck does she really know about Clark? Uh, in uh, you know, after the rescue in Canada, right? She has enough there to work back and end up on his mother's doorstep. I mean, she's good, and uh, that just it really works for me that she's not only like if she's got to be in on the secret from the ground floor. And obviously she is, she's worthy of being there. You know, she's not the obligatory love interest. She's worthy of Superman's affections. I mean, she's got the brains and the talent to back it up. And that's, To me, that's who Lois needs to be. You know, I think there's this sort of faux girl power aspect that people like to play up sometimes. That, you know, she doesn't take any shit from anybody. She'll talk shit to, you know, and that's not who she is. She's 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 competent. She's good at what she does, and much like Superman, she doesn't make a big deal out of it. You know, she's the best. She knows she's the best, but that's not an ego trip for. Right. She she got the she got Superman's the best, I think, just because of you know conscience. Lois is the best more from hard work and sheer talent, but it's still being the best on honest terms
1: Yeah, 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 the way the way you're talking about her kind of makes me feel that her um, Are we done measuring dicks line? Mm -hmm. Is not because she doesn't take any shit and she has to be a bitch to get her way but more of a competent Try to put guys at their ease because you know, hey, I'm just one. I'm just I'm just here You know, we're equal footing so there's no real need to be cocky about it. Let's just let's just get the
0: job done. Right, and I think you know somebody uh, tough like Colonel Hardy. I mean, let's face it, you got to be pretty fucking tough to get to where he is. Mm-hmm. He'd appreciate even if it's a little bit contrived. He'd appreciate her moxie. Yeah, and um, anyway, that – certainly uh, Emo Hamilton did. He was giggling. Yes, he was, and, and that's that. That just that whole scene just. It was just really good. I don't know if measuring dicks needs to be in a uh, – like the phrase needs to be in a Superman movie. But <laughs> the usage of it and the way that it's employed, it, it just makes it okay. So in any case though, Lois backtracks to um, the Kent farm and then from there tracks down Clark at Jonathan's grave. And then that leads into very possibly the most contentious flashback of the entire film, which is really saying something if you think about it. Um, it's basically Clark and Jonathan. It starts off Clark and Jonathan and Martha. They're just driving around and they're arguing with one another. And I think that people tend to lose sight of what exactly they're arguing about because of what a petulant Dick Clark behaves in that scene, you know? Right. Basically, Clark feels like he's ready. He's 17 years old. He's a teenager. He knows everything. I remember being that age and, dude, just – dude, you give me five minutes in the Oval Office. I will fix all the world's problems, man, (laughs) I know everything. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. Shut the fuck up and get out of my way. I know – I remember thinking those thoughts.
1: Because the majority of us as 25-year-olds really feel like we need to go back and see our 18-year-old selves and slap them in the head.
0: Yeah. And, you know, now – and at the time that you and I record this, I'm 34 years old and I don't know nothing. About nothing. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, you know, I'm content to let, let, let the big boys steer the ship, you know? Uh, let them fuck it up. I don't know. So, and I think that people react to that possibly because of, um, I guess there's a truthfulness to that. I mean, we all had very, let's face it, very mean conversations and confrontations like that with our parents. We said shit. I'm sorry, that was way out of line. My parents should have kicked my ass for some of the things that I said to them, and they didn't because they're good people. That doesn't mean I didn't deserve an ass-kicking. That just means they, they, they had mercy, that's all. But what they're really arguing about, though, if you think about it's still a very Superman trait. What he said is a dick thing to say. You're not my dad. You're just some guy that found me in a field. That's a fucking dick thing to say.
1: But here's the thing, and just just to put a pin on it, it's a very 17-year-old thing to say. Absolutely. And I think it's totally okay for Superman, as a 17-year-old, to occasionally be a dick to his parents. Especially when we go back to the fact that this is all about the man of steel. Right. This is a dude, a 17-year-old dude. And he mouthed off. And I think that's okay.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I totally agree with that. And the thing that I don't know if people just haven't noticed or if they're consciously trying to avoid, what are they arguing over? Clark wants to go public. He thinks he's ready. He, he's like, look, I don't want to be a farmer for the rest of my life. I can be more than this. I can go out there. I can make a difference. I can do this. I'm ready. What he wants is fundamentally a positive thing. He's not ready. Jonathan has to slap him back in line. He chooses not to. But Clark needs to get slapped back in line. And what Clark's rebelling against is Jonathan, once again, putting him on a leash. Yes. That is what I think people react to. And honestly, I don't know if it's just amnesia, but when Jonathan revealed Clark's... Uh, like, the truth of Clark's origins, at least as much as he knew, John, what Clark was... a What Clark was tripped out by was the reality that he's not jonathan kent's son and here he's throwing that back in jonathan's face specifically to hurt jonathan's feelings that's a very teenage dick thing to do but we all yeah
1: it, it's not amnesia it's five this, possibly the five most important years of growing up have gone by and he's a very different person than that little kid we saw before
0: and i think the That actually – it's funny. You hit the nail on the head with my next point. This is the only flashback that includes Henry Cavill. Mm -hmm. Snyder – and again, this I think is where Snyder is directing his own movie independent of the movie that Goyer wrote. Goyer had it in his script. It's Young Clark. Snyder put Cavill in that scene. Now, is Cavill a convincing 17-year-old? You know what? I don't know. Was Tom (laughs) Welling? After a certain point. But the question I always ask is how convincing was a 32-year-old Christian Bale as a 21-year-old Bruce – or sorry, 20-year-old Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins? Not fucking very, but we knew Christian Bale needed to own that scene where uh, Joe Chill gets shot to death. It couldn't be – Uh, a a different actor, uh, you know, young Bruce, somebody playing young, it had to be Christian Bale, age be damned. Bale needed to own that moment. We, I don't think Chris Nolan wanted us to be able to divorce this in any way from the Batman that we see later in the movie. This is the same guy. That I think is what Snyder was up to in this tornado scene where if Dylan Sprayberry had been in that scene and I think he could have passed you know he could have he he could have passed as a 17 year old if he really needed to Snyder wanted us to associate this petulant brat and his outburst with Cavill the guy that flies around in the superman outfit later in the film or earlier in the film as the case may be and I don't think that was an accident you know is it the most convincing thing to do well maybe not but it needed to be more than any other flashback, this had to be Cavill. He mm-hmm. needed this moment. That way, whenever we flash forward, we're seeing the same man who's haunted to this fucking day by the decision we haven't talked about yet, but by the decision he has to make later in that sequence and by the things he said in that scene. It has right. to be the same man. And that, I think, subconsciously is what bothers people. It would have been smoother for them. If they could even... Subconsciously disassociate that from Henry Cavill and thus disassociate it from Superman, I think they would have taken it better. Snyder doesn't give him the room to do that. He forces them to acknowledge, this is Superman who said this to his father. He regretted it the minute he said it. He was wrong. He knew it. But in the moment, he said it. And Jonathan was affected by it. And they never had a chance to, to mend fences over this. And this is something that... Over and against the decision, again, we're going to come to it, but over and against the decision he has to make later in the tornado scene, this, I think, is another thing that he's going to carry with him for the rest of his days. He never had a chance to put this right.
1: It's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, That's what she said. (laughs) My dad died when I was 16.
0: Oh, fuck. I wish I hadn't said that. I am so sorry. (laughs) No,
1: no, 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 no. You're fine. You're fine. I'm not saying this to bring everyone down. I'm just saying... To relate to the situation. Right. Um, My stepmother and baby sister died at the same time. And I had seen them all one weekend earlier. And I don't remember any big throwdown between me and my dad from that weekend. I don't remember any problems between me and my stepmom that weekend. But I did have a couple hours just me and the four-year-old sister. And, um, I was having trouble with her on the playground and made some decisions about how to try to get her to behave
0: mm-hmm.
1: that I would have made differently if I had my modern brain in that little 16 year old head. Yeah. Um, and that's one of my last memories I have of my baby sister is just not really dealing with her as well as i could have done to try to get her to to you know do what i want her to do and it's 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 not a huge regret because i have plenty of other memories and and you know it's yeah i've coped (laughs) yeah but you know it is hard whenever you have somebody taken from you extremely suddenly extremely unexpectedly and extremely violently and the last memory, the last encounter you have with that person is not a pleasant one. It's very, very hard to deal with. And um, and Clark does have to carry that. And moving along into the actual scene, if that's all right.
0: Go right ahead. You're about to make me cry, so please do.
1: <laughs> the, um, the stuff we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm with, what was I supposed to do, Dad? Let him die? Yeah. And he says, I don't know. Maybe. Because you're not ready yet to make the choice of showing the world that you have these powers. And Jonathan stands by that at the cost of his own life. Son, you're not ready yet to show the world that you have these powers because they're going to lose their shit when they find out. And if that means that I die in this tornado, saving a member of our family, saving our dog, if that moment of saving somebody is going to cost me my life rather than have you reveal yourself, mm-hmm. then that's what's going to be. And, and someone, you can debate the, debate the merits of that decision, mm-hmm. but you cannot fucking tell me that it wasn't a good fatherly decision to make. Maybe it was the wrong one, but it was still a good one. And, and it, it, it,
0: well, my view of it is, it pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah. It does. And I almost feel like there's a willful misunderstanding of this because I've heard people say again and again that it's like their takeaway from that scene. Their takeaway from that scene was Superman can't save everybody. And I'm sorry. That is not the point of that scene. It's not the point at all. And we actually – I don't think that lesson is really implicit or explicit necessarily anywhere in that in this movie but to whatever degree it is, it for damn sure is not that scene. That was not what we we're supposed to take away from this. Jonathan Kent believed in something. And whether he was right or whether he was wrong, he still believed in it. And he wasn't, what he told Clark earlier was you know what? It may, maybe, it may come down to that. I don't know. You may have to let somebody die. I have no idea. He taught Clark that principle and then he died for it. I'm sorry, but that is – thats uh, it, it, it just bothers me that people are going to – I think sometimes intentionally misconstrue that scene to be something other than what it was intended to be. Specifically, this is Jonathan uh, Kent putting his money where his mouth is, and – I'm sorry, dude, you know, you can agree with that decision or disagree. that's that's balls. How I mean, I would love to think that I would I would sacrifice my life to protect a member of my family, somebody that means that much to me over and against the stakes that Clark, for all anybody knew, may have been facing. I would love to think that I'd be noble enough to say, you know what? Just let me go. I'll be okay. Let me go. I'd like to think I could be that noble. I'm not sure I could be in the moment, you know? Right. And for people to just kind of wipe their ass with that lesson and, you know, I'm, look, I'm a big believer in principle. Damn it, you got to stand for something in life. You know, you
1: got And it really, I mean, he was dying for the morality that he was trying to teach his son. And how many of the problems of our world in our, our country, are because we have conflicting moralities at play. People are willing to go to war because their morality is the way they want things to be. And that's what Jonathan was doing. He wanted his son to 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 understand life a particular way. It cost him his own life. But that's the way we are. We are human beings,
0: and that's what we do. Right. It's just... <sighs> Frankly, that scene works for me in a way that Clark being too slow to save his father from a heart attack, the scene after he outruns a goddamn train, that just works for me, okay? And that scene in Superman the movie, what, you can outrun trains, but you can't save your father? You couldn't zip him over to the hospital real quick? Exactly what is your limitation here, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Here, Clark is... There's an enforced helplessness and that ultimately his father, not some guy who found him in a field, his father wanted what was best for him. And this was the only way he could see to get it. And I guess from a like a stylistic point of view, this movie is very it's not as shaky as, say, you know, the Bourne movies, but um, it's very handheld. That scene where the tornado envelops Jonathan is the one little stylistic flourish that I can think of, and that's a little bit more in line with Zack Snyder's more stylized type of uh, uh, visuals. You know, it's very poetic the way the tornado just sweeps Jonathan away out of Clark's I, life. I think
1: I think a violent death of Jonathan there, visually violent, would have been a misstep.
0: Yeah. And, because
1: uh, obviously a tornado would have swept his body up. Yeah, and that would have been a misstep, I think, in the storytelling.
0: Yeah, and there's a, uh, again, it's truth but not fact. It, yeah, you're right. It would have picked him up, and it wouldn't have just left him sitting on the ground and then gently washed him away.
1: It would have been horrible to see.
0: Yeah, it's it's terrible, but it's so it's true. It's just not factual. Right. But um.
1: There, there, there are a couple things you said that I want to say something about because I, I feel like it's a point that needs to be made about this scene.
0: Oh, by all means. Of all things, we need to beat this. There's one other scene, <laughs> as you know, that we need to beat to death, but we definitely need to beat this one to death. So say everything.
1: OK. So Clark could have, should have, might have run at super speed and saved his father and gun it so quickly that no one would have known is a point that I have heard made so many times. Okay. My twofold response to that is if you notice in this film, aside from fast flight, Clark never uses super speed. Mm. Not once in this film does Clark move at super speed. Now Fayora does. There's some really cool fighting scenes with Fayora dashing about at super speed mm-hmm. and it's really neat, but Clark never does that. And I'm not going to go so far as to say that he doesn't have that power, but he certainly has not found it yet in this film. So I don't think, according to the storytelling of the film, I don't think he could have saved his father by running at super speed. But also, in addition to that, as you said earlier, this is his father telling him not to move. And I know that all of us as teenagers really wanted to tell off our dads from time to time. But I don't know that very many of us actually did. or certainly not in a way that had any impact and actually got us to get our way. I mean, his father is telling him to stand there and don't move. You when it comes right down to it, you do what your dad says. Mm <laughs> hmm and whenever whenever it's the high the the emotions are at their highest and things are hardest you're going to default back to that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I think the scene plays exactly how it should have true to the characters that we had been given and the storytelling themes that we were have we were exploring. I don't think it could have gone any other way.
0: I agree. And the other thing is i'm kind of reading between the lines and if you think i'm i'm bending spoons a little too much here just feel free okay but i think there's a very strong argument that moment fucked clark up for good clark was never the same after that and if you look clark what we see in this movie is he's He's living this kind of David Banner type of existence. He's wandering the earth. And yeah, he is searching out the truth of, of his uh, origins and everything. But we don't really see him talk too much about going public until and – even, and even this is arguable – but until he meets jor And what we realize is we saw the end of Clark's – I don't know isolation that we hadn't even realized had started until we see this uh, tornado sequence. And then we realize this is why Clark has done what he's done. Clark's 33 years old. He could have uh, revealed himself to the public anytime he wanted. What was it then that kept him between the ages of 17 and 33 off the grid? I think it was this moment. I think that he, he decided, you know what, Jonathan Kent, my father died for this. And so until such a time as I'm absolutely positively sure, I'm not going to invalidate his death. This has to mean something. He was serious enough about it to die. This was the last thing that uh, he and I – this is the last conversation that he and I ever had. I told him I'm ready. I denied that he's my father. He proved he was my father, and then he told me, stand down. I'm going to stand down until something. Something happens. I'll know when it's ready. When I'm ready, when it's time, I'll know when it's time. Right. And it took meeting his biological father. I, I'm using meeting and kind of quote marks there, but he's. Well, as you
1: know, you can meet your dead parents in comic books. It happens.
0: Yeah. And I think that moment kind of beat him down for life until he met Jorel, who said that, okay, there is a way to do this. You have, it's not, it's not just revealing yourself to the world. It's why you're doing it. You need to lead these people. You need to guide them. You can give them hope that they've never even considered before. He gave – Clark always had the what, reveal yourself to the world, but he, ne- he never had a why. This is why. And it, it, he needed all of those years of searching, of earning this. You know, um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's penance for what he did. For what he said uh, uh, to Jonathan, but he needed there, the,
1: what? Yeah, it's not penance. You're right, but it, it does. It is an emotional process he needed to go through.
0: Yeah, and you know, Jonathan. It's it's funny. He got different things from his fathers. Jonathan gave him the what, which is reveal yourself to the world. It was it was, J- it was Jor-El who gave him a mission, who gave him a why. It's not enough. I mean, if you're going to do this there has to be a reason. You need to you need to have a mission. You need to have a why for doing this. And that's you know there these two fathers are giving their son different yet complementary things that enable him to become Superman. Again, he's the best of both. He embodies both uh, Mankind and and a Kryptonian kind. He is both. And there is no better summary of all of that. And again, if you think I'm I'm going too far off the reservation here, that's fine. Just say so. But he needed to get he needed to get one, that one thing from Jonathan. He needed to get the other thing from Jarel. I mean, what do you think?
1: No, I think that's good. Um, I hadn't really looked at it that way. I mean, he does set out to meet his parents or to, to find something about himself. The fact that he believes that he even could do that is kind of, kind of mind boggling, but he does know there's a ship. So maybe he, maybe he thinks that other things have happened. I, I, I guess it's kind of a lucky thing that he did because he turned out to be right. Otherwise we wouldn't have a movie. Um, but yeah, just the fact that he, it's, it's, an it's a good question to ask. Why didn't he... I mean, so he loses his dad at 17. We're seeing him when he's, you know, whatever, 33. So why didn't he reveal himself earlier? Why didn't he reveal himself as a 25-year-old or 29-year-old like he is in the comics? And, and we... I think it's a natural extrapolation to feel that my dad went to his grave... Feeling that if the world found out who I was, they'd fear me, which is what he tells Lois. And the thing is, turns out he was right. Now, did Jonathan need to give his life for that fact? I don't know. Because if there's one fact of bringing up children is you don't tell somebody else how to raise their goddamn kids. Right. Right. Unless they're flat out abusing them and then you put them in jail and, and teach somebody else how to raise their goddamn kids. Exactly. Um, but that's not what happened here. Jonathan gave his life for a principle and maybe it was not the right choice to make, but it was the good choice for Jonathan to make. So And, 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 and Clark stood by it for the rest of his life until he was giving an impetus to do something different. Right. And that impetus turned out to be Jor-El. Um, I like that. I have I have argued in the past more strongly for the idea that Jonathan was wrong. Mm-hmm. That it, it, I, and I, I'm not saying that's an – that's not where I am right now with the story, especially with the emotions I've invested in the conversation we've had today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not at that place with the story. But I think it is a, it is a valid alternative interpretation to say that, well – Jonathan, being a human father that he is, he was misguided and was wrong. It's still valid for his choices. It's still valid for his character, but he probably could have stood to do something a little bit differently. That's another way that could be looked at here, but it's not really how I'm feeling it right now.
0: Well... I used to say that the point of this movie was to discover that Jonathan Kent was wrong. Maybe the better way to phrase it is that Jonathan Kent was wrong, but for the right reasons. And he erred on the side of caution, on the side of protecting his family. And at the time that he uh, sacrificed himself, you know what? There's a – there. you could argue either way that, you know what, at that exact moment in time – Maybe the world wouldn't have been ready to accept Clark. There needed to be context for it. And that actually sort of, and I don't want to get too far into context because that actually leads into Act Two. But, you know, eventually, but it's important to understand that, like I said, both of his fathers are giving him something. Uh, Jonathan gave him the idea of what he needs to do, Jarrell gave him the plan the mission for doing it, the objective. And so there's only one more piece now that needs to be put on the table before the world truly is ready, I think, to accept Superman. And, you know, I, I just the way that I look at it is Jonathan Kent might have been wrong, like you say, who the hell knows? But if he was wrong, he was still wrong for the right reasons. Right. So... Um, now, uh, again, this, I said this
1: th- th- this episode has gotten way more emotional than I expected whenever I came on here.
0: Oh. So, <laughs> oh, do you need a minute or? No, no, no. I'm good.
1: I, it, I I think it's been a great conversation. I'm hoping that the listeners agree because, um, um yeah,
0: well, I, was not,
1: I, I was not expecting to have have tears when I was talking to Trennis this morning.
0: Oh, well, well, <laughs> well, two and a half hours into it, you know, hey, <laughs> I, yeah. hope, I hope they're getting something <laughs> out of this. So now um, what I said at the beginning of this was, uh, you know, let's beat this thing to death. Don't, le- Dude, leave no stone unturned. Is there anything more that you want to say?
1: Um, I think I'm good. I mean, I just I wish I could change everyone's minds. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's like We're allowed to have different opinions. That's what makes humanity so amazing.
0: Yeah. And uh, don't worry. I'll, I will bring them order someday. So, someday. Yeah. Now – um, Clark relates all of this to Lois at the graveside, and that is her inspiration, which I think is kind of telling about her. She decides to kill the story about her superhuman rescuer and then uh, you know Perry Perry buys it somewhat reluctantly, but he buys it and then from there, he, he at least validates her choice. yeah, that's yeah, you know what that's the better way to put it. From there, Clark returns to the Kent farm, and I think the big announcement there is—it's—they don't make a huge sort of moment out of it, but he tells Martha that he's found his people, and she kind of makes this face like she kind of got punched in the ovaries over that. That yeah, on, on some level, you know, you already did—you already have your people. We're we're right here. We're your people. Those 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 other ones—they're just they're strangers. I mean, isn't why isn't this good enough? And you know what? I, I think she feels threatened by that in a way again, I'm you know, reading between a lot of lines here. She feels threatened by that in ways that I don't think Jonathan would have. You know, I don't think he would have necessarily cheered Clark on, but he would have said, You know what? I told you that you owe it to yourself to discover the truth. This is the truth. This was what you were supposed to do. Good for you, son.
1: I feel like we get um some great examples of the differences between motherhood and fatherhood, yeah, in ways that are not stereotypical or negative, yeah, or sexist, I guess, is, is to put a, to put a pl- uh, point on it. Um, because Lara and Jorel, and then Jonathan and Diane, uh, I saw Diane because that's the actress's name, Jonathan and Martha, mm-hmm. um, they're very, very different kinds of people, but. Laura and and Martha both have some very motherly attitudes towards their son. You know, Laura did not want to let him go. And if she did have to let him go, please make a better world than ours. You know, just just so much pride and protectiveness of her of, of her son. And you know, similarly with Martha, she's she's raised this boy. This is her boy. We never actually saw them find him. Which, you know, I kind of wish we had, but I guess that is one thing that's really been done so many times. Um, but she has definitely raised him from infancy to be her boy.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: now he's saying he's found other parents.
0: And I think and that's it, it, what she'd interpret from that.
1: Yeah, it's, that would be, like you said, just a real punch in the gut that he didn't mean it like that, but he said it like that, you know? Right and he realizes i think almost immediately that he kind of misstepped in what he was saying and then they have the moment where she talks about you know his infancy which is a sweet
0: moment and a mythos moment that feeds into the plot yes it does and yes it does and um i don't know it's just that just the human reassurance of it 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 just it rings true for me that you know sometimes you get to a point in your relationship with your parents where sometimes, you know what, they need a little bit of reassurance too. And they can't get that from their five year old little boy But you know, there comes a point where your adult self, you can look back and say, you know what guys, maybe there were mistakes made along the way, but I love you. You love me. So something must've gone right. You know,
1: it's a weird thing about the human experience that after a while we begin to take care of our parents. Yes, it is. And there are a lot of parallels between taking care of them as seniors and then taking care of us as children and adolescents. Yeah,
0: very true, very true. Um, and uh, if I were feeling more irreverent right now, I'd actually joke about that. But no, uh, this is you're you're absolutely right, and I'm just going to respect that. So, <laughs> um, and that is basically the end of Act One. And uh, Act Two. One of the things that works about this about this film for me is that everything springs from a sort of logical chain of events. I mean, I realize that filmmaking is really—it's all about shorthand. You've got to tell—you've got a story that you need to tell, and there are times when you got to pay, play a little bit uh, fast and loose with events. And a good example um, is *The Godfather*. You know, that's one of the most beloved movies of all time. There are very few people out there who are willing to talk shit about The Godfather. Right. Here's the fact.
1: And whoever they are, we'll have them
0: killed. Yeah, pretty much. We'll make them an offer that, yeah. So, <laughs> here, he, he, the fact is, though, it's awfully fucking convenient that Barzini decided to make his move right as Michael assumed, uh, or not, actually not as he assumed control, Right as he returned from the war. Convenient fucking timing, but it's parallel plot construction. Sometimes that's the way things just need to be. That's not the way that things are in this movie. Everything springs forth from characters making decisions or actions that they take. And in the case of Zod, a UFO is sighted hovering above the United States Zod hijacks the media and basically tells Clark to surrender. And it's not getting too far ahead to say that basically what lured him to Earth was Clark flying around in the uh, Kryptonian spaceship. That's what brought Zod to Earth. Except for that moment, it wouldn't have happened. Zod would never have been uh, attracted to Earth. He would never have come here looking for Kal-El. That moment is is what did it. And that works for me because, I mean – I don't think anybody would have rioted in the streets of Zod coincidentally showed up on planet Earth right as Clark became Superman because it's a confrontation that needs to take place. But the reason That's I'm being stories work. Yeah. But the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the ass about it is that the I guess the storytelling snob in me appreciates the fact that David Goyer had his thinking cap on with all of this and he realized that, you know what? The universe is a pretty fucking big place. It's a little coincidental to think that two members of the same alien uh, race expatriated from their home would end up on the same planet without some type of a catalyst. And so this was what he devised to account for Clark becoming Superman and then having a huge uh, showdown with Zod without it seeming contrived and artificial. And I don't say this to bash on Superman 2 – or anything. I don't want anyone to 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 take that from this, but it is a little bit convenient that Superman dropped an atomic fucking bomb into outer space just as the Phantom Zone mirror happened to be zipping by. That's a little bit of a coincidence, considering how big space is, right? right. So you know, here you've got David Goyer, and again, maybe it it only appeals to snobs like me, but he he covers his bet. On that, and I, I just, I appreciate that. I, I like yeah. it when filmmakers they invest the time because that means it's okay for me to invest the time. That's why I don't think it's a lost cause for me to uh, analyze this film as much obviously as I have. It's there's something here to be analyzed, and it, it just feels to me like uh, Goyer and Snyder are both saying, "By all means, put it under the microscope. I got nothing to hide." whereas i don't know that necessarily every single film is not is constructed in such a way to invite this type of analysis i'm i've kind of got verbal diarrhea here so feel free to break no, no, in no
1: no well, you you've got a point there cuz there are you know i am a comics fan i am mm-hmm. a comics podcaster mm-hmm. one of the things that gets my you know honey running about comics is the continuity
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um building of the myth of the world and storytelling that goes into that. And that's one of the things that I like to talk about whenever I'm podcasting about stuff. It's what I do on Avengers inspirations. We're talking about the comics and the, the MCU films. Um, and so there are a lot of films out there that I will analyze from a continuity world building standpoint. Yeah, What a lot of films don't offer a lot of room for is literary analysis and love the Avengers five days a week, you know, every day and twice on Sunday, love it as much as you want to. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: There's not a lot of depth in that film. And so when you say something like this film invites analysis and it makes it okay to spend time analyzing it, I have to agree because this is a film that stands up to that kind of thought process, that kind of mentality and analysis. Mm -hmm. It's not just a film about Superman. It's not just a film where we can geek out about Krypton. I mean, it is that, and we've done that, but it's more than that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've really tried to do is, especially in the past couple of years is what I want is for people to like comics what I want is for people to watch comic book movies, and it feels in, just sort of inappropriate to me to look somebody in the eye who who just fucking loves X Men, Days of Future Past, and said you're wrong. Fuck you, you're wrong. Go fuck off. Your 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 mom's a whore. Fuck you. you know? <laughs> it just that feels so wrong to me. I mean, you know, this 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 guy's one of my people, you know. And if, if somebody is just just geeking the hell out over goings on with MCU and oh my god, you know, we've got we've got the Infinity War and that's coming and the, but before that, you know, that we, we we've got fucking we've got c- Civil War and that's going to be fucking amazing. One of the biggest things that Marvel has ever done. And we're getting we're getting a movie on that and just the the fact that it fucking exists. Civil War is going to be a movie. Enough said. Dude, you had me at hello. Okay, that should be enough. And this whole idea of there being animosity between me and my fellow geek, I just if you think about how just fucking illogical that is. I mean, dude, we're gearing up for a Suicide Squad movie. When you were 12 years old, did you ever in your wildest goddamn dreams ever think that you'd be gearing up someday for a Suicide Suicide Squad Squad movie? I know. And yet here we are. And it's here's here's a mind job for you. You ready for this? It's going to have a live-action Harley-fucking-Quinn in it. I know! She's exists. She exists. She's on film
1: right now.
0: Yeah. And we're going to tear each other up? No. No, 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 no. No. This is the time. Look, call it kumbaya campfire bullshit if you want, but this is the time where we need to band together as fans. Dude, the fact that somebody out there loves what I think are... I'm not saying this to be pejorative – I'm not saying this as a pejorative or anything, but I think the kind of lighter souffle type of uh, Marvel films, the fact that people just fucking love those. Dude, I love them too. And the fact that we've also got a, a DC cinematic universe. It's, it's going to be a shared universe. And we're going to have – it's going to its going to be big and it's going to have ideas to it. And maybe it's going to be a little bit more uh, – it's going to have a little bit more to chew on than Marvel does, which I think is kind of DC's forte anyway. That, fucking that, that's – good news too i mean there's you know why does it have to be this kind of struggle you know it there's there's room for everybody and there's room for everything enjoy it you know and the fact that you, we're putting man of steel under this type of a microscope and finding you know what it holds up you know guys
1: doesn't take away from the fact that all the other things are good too
0: yeah you know it what you enjoy is not invalidated by the fact that this is a good well constructed logical coherent movie it's not commentary on the fact that you know what uh thor the dark world was an incomprehensible fucking mess nobody's saying that i love thor the dark world but i love this movie too and i can chew on this in ways that as much as i dig on i don't iron man 2 just doesn't have as much there for me you know that's all i'm saying so yeah Anyway, so, but we kind of need to emphasize this. Really, this is the contact moment of Man of Steel. You've got Zod, he's buzzing around in his ship over America, and he basically hijacks all media radio, television, internet, RSS feeds, you name it. You're not alone one of my kind is here among you, and that guy needs to turn his ass over to me within 24 hours, or I will rain down an ungodly fucking rain of destruction upon you. You're gonna have to call the UN to get a binding fucking resolution to keep me from destroying you, okay? I'm talking scorched earth, motherfucker. I will fuck you up, and I'm getting a call. (laughs) Sorry, just have to turn off my ringer here. But yeah, you know, and that's kind of where that's kind of where we are right now, you know, and that it's is... been his obsessive mission ever
1: since Krypton destroyed. What did he go down saying? I will find him
0: mm-hmm.
1: now. And... He doesn't realize exactly the nature of what he's looking for because he doesn't realize that the codex for Krypton is is embedded in, in Cal, but he knows it's in the ship somewhere. Yeah, he knows it came to Earth and everything he has done in life has been for the good of his people. And he wants to reestablish his destroyed people. Yes.
0: And honestly, I mean, you know what? That's his avowed purpose, and there's a degree to which, you know what? I can understand. You know what? I mean, in in, in we're talking like some very extreme situations, but if you were in his shoes, some part of you would want to hold on to the world that you grew up in. You know? I mean, th- you know, this world that we live in now, it's got problems. But damn it, this is home. And right. would want to reestablish that elsewhere. And I think there's actually a little bit of character shit going on here with Zod. We'll get we'll get to it when we get to it. But we'll, there's a little there's an angle to all of this when it comes to Zod that I don't know if people have ever really bothered to stop and think about. So anyway, we'll come to that. For right now, though, the FBI and the military intelligence arrest Lois, and uh, basically what they want to do is compel her. To, at this point, it truly is a matter of – they call it national security just because their jurisdiction ends at the nation's borders. Fact is, entire world is at stake here.
1: It's human security, global security.
0: Yeah, and there's, there's got to be answers to this. Lois Lane is the only one who knows. She's an American citizen. Let's go get her. You can follow that chain of logic very well. They can't take this lying down. If this guy's serious, we've got to do what we can either to get the truth from her – or else figure out how we're going to respond to this guy if we can't find this alien that he's looking for this Kal-El person, we've got to figure something out, you know and they're not doing it necessarily to, to be dicks, and that was actually what I took from it the first time, yeah, the fucking government leave it to them, not really, this is actually a, this is an honorable thing, they want to protect their people, they're really no different from Zod in that way the difference between them and Zod, we'll come to when we come to, but Ultimately, you can see that they're basically doing the same thing that Zod would be if their situations were reversed. And again, there's just – there's a fucking honesty to that that it just – it plays for me. Mm-hmm. Then we get into a li- little bit of heavy-handed symbolism where Clark pays a visit to a Catholic church.
1: I'll be honest though. I may, Maybe I'm just – Blind to this sort of thing, mm-hmm. I came away from the film hearing about how Zack Snyder and or David Goyer really like to put Christ symbology all over their, you know, mm-hmm. and how it or the or or the, the Christ symbology that's so often put in with Superman is so heavy in this film, and I just didn't remember seeing it, and so yeah, there's this scene where he goes and he talks to the the priest or the parishioner of some sort and a clergyman. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just – it didn't even occur to me to mind that he was going and asking for help from someone.
0: Well, I think most people would have probably just rolled with it because in literature, what I – find and and for purposes of this discussion, I include film with literature. Mm Mm-hmm there are certain people there are certain archetypes there are certain stereotypes and other things that we all use for just sort of storytelling shorthand you know if you have a redneck if you show a redneck in a movie not always but you can usually count on the fact that he's going to be a gun-toting confederate flag-waving just fucking bigot right
1: with a beer in his hand
0: yeah, probably with a beer in his hand, too, and uh, drives a big truck and all this stuff. And is that true of every single Southerner in the world? Obviously not. But
1: We've we, we got two Southerners here talking on a podcast.
0: Yeah. And I, <laughs> you know, honestly, I don't really care what anybody thinks, but for whatever difference it makes, I don't own anything that has a Confederate flag on it. And I assume you don't either, so nope. I, I don't know. But um, it's just, it's one of those... So what I'm saying is I'm not trying to fucking endorse the Catholic church here when I say that when you show a character visiting with a Catholic priest, we do this for shorthand in saying that he's talking to somebody who has no agenda. He just wants what's good for you. And so for Superman to pay a visit to a Catholic church and talk to a priest and it's basically somebody who's trying to give the best advice that he possibly can – And let's face it, I'm sure most priests are are not ready for I mean, they hear some weird things. I know that for sure. But this has got to be the weirdest thing this priest has ever heard.
1: Oh, whenever whenever, whenever Clark says that he's the one they're looking for and the guy just like swallows. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And, uh, you know, you can hear the toilet flush somewhere and uh, like in the guy's head. And anyway, it's just it's but what the story needs is for Superman to or Clark at this point it needs for Clark to talk to somebody with no bullshit. They're going to be completely honest. There's not going to be any kind of secret agenda. They just want what's best for you. And in just kind of simplistic shorthand literary types of ways, the easiest way to get there is, or at least one easy way to get there is a Catholic priest. It's the fact that Clark is standing in front of the stained glass window that reenacts, um, uh, Gethsemane. Yeah, Christ in uh, Gethsemane. The moment basically where Christ has to, you know, really now finally commit to what he knows his destiny to be. And just what a night that must have been. And that's, in a sense, the same type of situation that Clark is facing here. And I can understand where, you know, people would joke about that and everything. And, you know, whatever. I mean, look, ultimately, people are going to have the reaction to religion, and religious uh, symbolism that they're going to have, and different people to believe different things, and that's just the way that things are. As a human race, I truly do not think we're ever going to be able to agree universally. And that's fine. But at least in the Western world, this is, sim- this is symbolism, and this is storytelling that we're familiar with and we understand, and it's a convenient it's a convenient toolbox for any storyteller to go to in order to make whatever point it is that they're trying to make. And I think people attached a little bit too much of an agenda behind that, where one maybe wasn't really intended, but whatever. That leads into, I think this is actually the final flashback of the film. And originally, this was actually a, 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 hard, a hard thing for me to get my head around. Like, what is this flashback saying? Why is this flashback here? But basically what happens is Clark gets ambushed by bullies, and then he gets pushed around. Ultimately, he refuses to fight back, just as he did with the uh, truck-driving bully at the beginning of the film. Jonathan ends up interrupting the whole thing, and he reminds Clark that he's got a big future ahead. And it's something that's a lot bigger than just smacking bullies around, because ultimately Clark's going to change the world. He's not here necessarily to you know, drop the smackdown on people who mistreat other people. He's going to change the world. And so here's his opportunity to change the world. And so the, I think that's sort of the macro event. The micro event, though, is how is the world going to react to Clark, to the, or actually I should say to the reality of Kal-El. That, I think, is part of what that flashback is meant to show us. Clark stood up to the bully in his own way. He realized that his destiny is bigger than just smacking bullies around. But while he, after he got kicked around, what happened? Pete came along and helped him back up to his feet. A human who had to know some amount of the truth about who Clark really is reached out in friendship and solidarity. That is the point of the flashback. That is what Clark is hoping for. Hoping is on the other side, on a global level for him. He's going to do this. He's going to he's going to basically sacrifice himself, surrender to Zod. He's not sure that the human race can be trusted. They already are. He's already there in some ways. It's just on a very small scale. He needs to give mankind a chance now to embrace him globally. That I think is the point of the flashback. And if you think I'm wrong. Feel free, but that's it, that only really soaked in for me when I was rewatching the movie for this uh, for this episode. So
1: that's no, pretty fucking amazing, actually. Um, Cause yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but he he does place a lot of it. There's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that he is not turning himself over to Zod. He is entrusting himself to the hands of humanity. Yeah, and he is hoping to God <laughs> or to Rao. Mm-hmm. that they don't betray him. Now, I think the sad thing is, is that, you know, evidently the sequel shows that there's going to be definitely some amount of betrayal. But that's, you know, for the next half of the show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this it's going to be such a long show. But yay, long shows. Um, I did not mind at all the uh, the religious symbolism. And you'd think one of my mindset might. But it's just, it's just one of those things that people do. They go to... They go to people who are in the position of counseling and ask for counsel, and those, you know, clergymen are a really good place to go for that. As far as the flashback goes, it was weird because the dad was kind of terse with him. Is that y'all right? Yeah. Does it hurt you? Um, but yeah, he did, He does say that you're going to change the world and that kind of goes back to the conversation earlier about, you know, someday you're going to have to choose what you're going to do and you're going to have a huge impact on the world. And choosing the kind of man you want to be is a lesson that everybody needs to learn. Yes. Everybody needs to learn that you can be – and you may not be able to be anything you want to be. You know, we all have our own lives and our own restrictions, and our own opportunities. But you can be any kind of person that you want to be, if True. you just take the time, make the effort, and change your ways. Exactly. And so Clark has to decide. And I'm just going to harp on it on a, a little tangential thought here. Please do. One of the things about this film is that Superman is not a good man. Because that's what Superman is. Not in this movie. No no, 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 no. Superman in this movie is a good man because he's had to learn how to be that man. And it has been an occasionally very difficult, humiliating process, but he has come to be that person. And um, it just goes back to one of my one of my peeves about criticism here on this film is that he's not the Superman that he should be. And I'm like, well, no, but he is Superman and he's, he's a Superman. He's learned how to be.
0: Um, I, I agree with that. And it's kind of funny that that actually, uh, ties in with a point I was going to make right about here. Actually, what we're, what we've seen all through this movie is Clark fumble his way towards becoming Superman. He's, he said things that he wish that he wishes he could take back. There are choices that he's had to make for the sake of expediency for what he thinks I truly believe is honoring what his father died to give him. He's trying to be, he's basically working his way towards becoming this as best he can. This is And look, this really does tie in with one of my major gripes with Superman the movie. And if people choose to get irritated by this, uh, this I will not apologize for because I, I I really do stand by it. This what we're seeing in Man of Steel is a super is basically Clark learning how to be Superman. Now he may not know that's what he's becoming. That is in fact what he's becoming, slowly but surely. In Superman the movie, he basically gets subjected to 12 years of Kryptonian brainwashing, and there's your Superman, Hoss. And I've just got problems with that. I always have. This is not a transformation that Clark makes, uh, because everything that he's ever been up to this point just isn't good enough, which I think is really the driving message of Smallville, especially in the series finale. This is not the journey of discovery and perfection, and ultimately, acceptance that I think Man of Steel is. What we see in Superman the movie is Clark, imperfectly. Uh, I think wrongly, jealously coveting this life of football superstardom. Um, he has a scene with Glenn Ford to tell him he's wrong. He's too apparently he's too slow to save Glenn's life. Then he gets whisked off to this ice palace in the Antarctic where he gets brainwashed and transformed into something that. I don't think the natural trajectory of his life was taking him toward. And anyone who criticizes goings-on in Man of Steel, dude, get your own fucking house in order first. I mean, I'm sorry. Th- what The struggles that Clark is dealing with and he's overcoming, the psychological barriers he's having to break, not only for his own good, but for the greater good of all of humanity, I'm sorry, that's bigger and more heroic than getting... Brainwashed by Kryptonian crystals for 12 years. I mean, again, if you're offended by that, look, I'm sorry. But that's really the biggest gripe that I have about Superman the movie. This is not a decision that Clark made. This was something that was put upon him by external forces. And that, I'm sorry, is completely abjectly foreign to what Superman is. Superman does what he does because it's the right thing to do. Not because he's been fucking brainwashed to do it. And anyway, I'm ranting. I don't mean to uh, you're you're free to ignore that or react to it as you see fit. Tell me I'm wrong, whatever, but it's just that's how I view it.
1: It's the kind of thing that's a it, that is a very comic book kind of storytelling trope but not a very human expectation yeah and certainly not if we're trying to tell a a, a human um, a story about the forces of humanity making a Superman, yep. which is what this movie is. Um, so, so yeah, I, I never really thought that much about the whole Kryptonian ice crystals thing as being a problem with Superman. Um, but I can definitely see that, that there are, depending on what kind of story you're wanting to tell, there are definitely some flaws with that approach to things.
0: Fair enough. That's probably the more diplomatic way to put it, but I don't know. it's just,
1: Well, the thing is, Superman the movie is such a Bronze Age creation. Yes, it is. I mean, and that's great, but it's also flawed. Because Bronze Age Superman is great, but it's also flawed. (laughs) Yes,
0: it is. Well, and look, I guess my point is, when it comes to all, I am not anti-Donner, anti-Reeve, any of that stuff. I'm just going to say that if we're going to put this stuff under the microscope, if we're going to put... Basically, if we're going to analyze these films, then let's just hold them to the same fucking standard. All right, you don't... uh, You know, whatever your beef is with Man of Steel, let's see how Superman the movie holds up to your standards. Not mine, to yours. And you pick the test, but let's apply it to both equally. That's all I ask, is just a little bit of intellectual honesty. But what I find is that... The best example I can think of, right? There's a moment. It's fucking awesome, right? There's this moment in Superman the movie. Uh, Clark w- exits the Daily Planet building, looks up. He sees that all hell just broke loose on the Daily Planet roof. That helicopter is going to come crashing down to the pavement. It's going to kill God himself only knows how many people unless Clark does something. So he dashes across the street, and from a, uh, across the street from the Hotel Vandalur, he... Tears open his shirt, zips around through the revolving door. It's a very comic book way to change clothes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Comes out as Superman. It's this big, majestic moment. This is what the entire, almost last hour of the movie's been building toward. This moment. We finally are there. And Christopher Reeve, blink and you miss it, but dude, he walks out of that revolving door, and he just has this supremely unconcerned look on his face. He has not a single fuck to give about what's what's happening on the roof of the Daily Planet because in his mind he has already taken care of the situation that's how confident he is he he's not panicked he's not con- he's not even concerned he's all he's he's just got this badass look of confidence on his face go back and watch it we, that it it only lasts for a second but he comes out of the revolving door He's got badass just leaking off of him. And in that moment, here comes this fucking pimp to interrupt the series of the moment. Hey, man, bad outfit. Dude, if you put that same exact fucking moment in Lois and Clark and Smallville, Superman, the animated series, fucking, well, it wouldn't be in Fleischer, but anything else, you know, where the this amazing, mythos-heavy, epic moment is immediately ma- undermined by somebody making fun of Superman's outfit, This very same people who hold Superman the movie up as definitive would crucify that thing, burn it in effigy, and scatter the ashes to the wind. But hey, it's such a classic moment when it's in Superman the movie. And dude, I agree it is. It's a classic moment. It's kind of funny. I've grown to love it. But don't ever deny that that moment is designed specifically to undermine the epic seriousness of – Superman's debut. Literally, the moment we get our first good look at Superman in that movie, somebody's making fun of him. That's I'm sorry. That's unacceptable. And again, if this bothers any of you who are listening, I, you know what? I'm really not going to apologize for that because that truly is the way that I feel. It's just if, if that moment or something like it had been in Man of Steel, you guys would have ammo from here to Christmas and you'd be using it. So don't come to me and say that I'm somehow being unfair here. You know? Well,
1: Hold on one second again, I'm so sorry. Sure. That should be all the deliveries I'm getting today. All right. Cool. Okay. Um, okay. So yeah, the uh, yeah Brennan energy. Okay. So um, did I have anything I want to say to that? Um.
0: Sorry, man. I'm not trying to rant at you here. No, no,
1: no. no I'm trying to think if I had anything I because 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 it's great. It's 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 listening gold. I just didn't have had a thought to respond to it. I don't think okay. I do. Okay. So I, I'll say this
0: for the for the fluidity.
1: Okay. I think you've probably said everything I could possibly
0: say about that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, it's uh,
1: it, it, it's it's a great point though, because there are there are double standards in the way that these films are judged by some branches of the fandom, and it's it it, it, it it's more than a little bit frustrating.
0: It is, and I try not to take it out on the people, but it, it nevertheless it is. It, as long as we acknowledge that it happens, I guess that's the most we can ask for. To move on to something that's a little less uh, provocative, what we have is Superman surrendering to the United States military in exchange for Lois's freedom. And then uh, there's this kind of neat little scene where Superman, in, out, in his full outfit now, uh, meets with Lois, and then, I, I guess under the auspices of military intelligence, and they have this I just really enjoy this scene. I mean, it's sort of uneasy, and you can tell that, the, that basically humanity, as represented by the United States military, really don't know what to make of, of Superman. They're not instantaneously distrustful of him, though. The one they don't trust necessarily is Zod. That's not, that's not necessarily commentary on Superman at this time.
1: It's just a known evil and an unknown whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to say unknown hero, but they don't know he's a hero. He's just an unknown. Yeah. They, they know there's a danger from Zod. They don't know what this other guy is, but Zod's asking for them, and survival mode is kicked in.
0: I agree. And people have criticized the fact that Lois starts to say Superman and then she gets or at least it sounds like she's starting to say Superman and then she gets cut off. And to me, the point of it is, number one, she's starting to say it. She, her mind is already there. And number two, it kind of emphasizes the point that there are bigger issues that are going on here right now than what we're going to call this guy. Because as far as anybody knows, we're about to send his ass off uh, back to his people and we're never going to see him again we get to we all get to live happily ever after. And it kind of works for the agendas that are at play in that scene. Superman wants to set everybody's mind at ease. Guys, I'm not here to hurt anybody, all right? I've been here all along. Obviously, I'm, you know, if I was some kind of a monster, you'd have heard about it by now. Right. And their point of view is, you know, it's a little bit much to ask us to not have questions for us not to at least want to at least try debriefing you i mean you know you kind of got he says us.
1: we have we have legitimate security
0: concerns yeah and how could he not i mean he's got uh, an unknown but uh, undoubtedly powerful hostile alien force hovering over the united states that alone is contact i mean we have now officially made contact with an alien civilization and oh my gosh they're not friendly yeah and on top of all of that We've been infiltrated. That's the way they're looking at it. For all we know, we've been infiltrated. They say there's only one. How do we know there's only one alien here? They look just like us. How are we going to know? I mean, it's believable to me that they would want to have a lot of questions that they could hope Superman would answer for them. And I really – I think if anything, they're actually portrayed – very powerfully in that scene, they're not panicking. They're not flying off the handle. They're not making accusations. They just need to know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, that's a completely reason. Who among us wouldn't want to know what the fuck is going on? I'm always trying
1: to. I ask my wife on a daily basis, "Can someone please tell me just what the fuck is going on here?"
0: Yeah, and I'm she gets tired I, of hearing it. Yeah, and I don't know. If, well, maybe she gets tired of answering it too. she's like, "Okay, your name is John. <laughs> we're married. You know." But uh, anyway, so it's just – there's just so much about this scene that that w- works for me from a logical standpoint. you know. And then there's also just – let's not overlook the obvious – just the inherent coolness of Superman standing up and nonchalantly – he's not even breaking his handcuffs. He's just parting – he's just basically letting his arms relax. And the that, handcuffs snap. Yeah, that's all it takes. And again, I mean I remember like there were gasps in the audience like holy fuck and that that kind of in the second screening the first screening i saw it at midnight and you kind of got to figure it was probably true believers seeing the movie at midnight Mm -hmm. when i saw it the following day like officially opening day actually it wasn't midnight was it it was like that uh walmart
1: it was the walmart thursday seven
0: o'clock yeah that's right okay so wow in my mind it became midnight but whatever right so um but the following day, like opening day proper, like there were gasps mm-hmm. from the audience, like, fuck. It's like, and, you know, it's, again, you can't put sensations into words, but they understood what they just saw and that that was not lost on them. And it's just a really cool, very powerful moment. And this is our first major introduction to General Swanwick. And I just first off, I love this actor from the Matrix sequels, but I love him, love him in this movie. He's just great.
1: Yeah, the um the theater I was in had a similar reaction. It's just I don't know what it is about the casualness of it all that made it that much more badass. But it did. It was it was one of the it was one of the most badass things that Superman does in this film.
0: Yeah. I
1: agree. Because I mean, he he's not a strutter. In this movie, he, he's not the cock of the walk. He's not showing off his stuff. But that little moment, it was a little bit of a show off. And it was it worked. It worked really, really well.
0: Well, and especially when, you know, his point is that you don't control me. You never will. But I'm not your enemy. And he demonstrated that by breaking the cuffs. They know he can crash through that wall and kill everybody if he decides he wants to do it. He broke the cuffs to make a point. He's not—he's not an enemy. Zod, Ye, who knows? And again, it's—it's it's one of those moments where actions meet words. It's, um, it's the, the the on-screen action underscoring what people are saying, and I think this movie does that extraordinarily well and gets very little credit for it. And I don't know—it's just all around. This is uh, that it's that whole they call it an interrogation and it's not even that because it's more like a conversation i don't think the military they don't really ask them all that many questions and it, it's this whole idea of you know people want to say that this is a very hulk type of story to tell you know superman versus the military it's not it's superman eventually working with the military they are unsure they're not hostile to him they're just unsure to to start with. That's all. Yeah.
1: Every time that the conflict arises between Superman and the military, it's because Superman and the military are caught up in the same conflict with the other Kryptonians. Right. So when we get to the Smallville attack scene, you know, uh, Hardy says to shoot all open fire the targets, whatever. Somebody says, what about the guy in blue? He says, I said open fire on all the targets because at that point they just don't know what's going on.
0: I agree. And uh, it's, it's, it's it, that. Mo- well, you know what? We'll get to that moment. Um, Cause really this,
1: this story, mm-hmm. what this is, this is an alien invasion story. Ultimately, this is an yes. alien invasion story featuring Superman. And those are the kinds of storytelling beasts and the kinds of themes and tropes that we're going to be exploring here is what do we do whenever we find out the answer to, are we alone in the universe? And it's, no, you're not, but now you die.
0: <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> well, from there, Superman uh, is handed over to Zod. Faora, uh pretty much demands to bring Lois with her. And what I find very telling is that the military, knowing they're just hopelessly outgunned by the Kryptonians, were still willing to stand up. And say, you know what? You look. You want your guy back? Fine. You're not taking ours. You know, don't ever think that this, that you know, we're not we we're not capitulating to anything. We're just giving you what's yours. We're not giving you what's ours.
1: And I love that that's Hardy that says that, because Feor and Hardy's uh, animosity has just a nice little arc. It's little and it's subtle and it's there, but it's great.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed that part of the movie too. Uh, it's. It, It's very emotional, especially towards the end. But, uh, yeah, it's – well, anyway. So from there, Superman and Lois, they uh, zip off uh, in the shuttle. They join up with Zod's proper ship. And Superman meets Zod, has that reaction to the ship's atmosphere. And part of the press for this movie was that David Goyer had discovered a new weakness for Superman. And I'll be honest with you, I – Thought what he meant by that was... Or rather, what I interpreted from that... Was that he had created something. They're not calling it kryptonite. Fucking, it's kryptonite. And it's not. This, is, this, fun, this, this serves a different function. I would say to the entire story... At large, but to Superman in particular... This idea of Superman... Being vulnerable to Kryptonian atmosphere... Well, number one... That makes all the sense in the world. Number two... Let's face it, um, it. It figures heavily into the plot of the uh, of the film and you know subsequent goings on. Zod's ultimate plan, and more than anything, it kind of it, 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 again bending spoons, perhaps, but it shows Lois that these powers are not absolute. That and they're also not natural. They can be undone, and that's a. An interesting thing for Lois to understand about Clark, specifically Superman, literally from the get-go, you know, um, that they can – you know, that he doesn't have these powers as natural biology. Um, they – it needs specific
1: – Or at or, least not natural biology that would just always be there.
0: Right. Yeah, that, Yeah. that's a better way to
1: – put His it. powers are not our arms or, you know, our ability to, to... – swim or or whatever it's not something that is just always going to be there it's something that requires certain circumstances it's an interaction between his physiology and 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 ours
0: correct and it also plays into um like i said you know uh not just actually zod now that i think about it. it actually plays in rather nicely with superman later in the movie but again getting ahead of ourselves um that's my fault um so superman passes out and we get this this sort of strange, very Zack Snyder-type of telepathic communication between Superman and Zod, where basically Zod breaks down what he's been up to for the past 30 years, and Zod also points out that he only he and his officers only found Earth thanks to Clark turning on the Kryptonian scout ship, and that's ultimately that's what serves sort of as a beacon, led them uh, to Earth, and obviously to Kal-El. And then we get to, I think, the real crux of what Zod's up to here. He lays out his agenda. He's got a world engine, and he wants to use it to reshape Earth into some kind of a new Krypton. Now, I mentioned a while ago that there's a dimension to Zod's character here that I don't think has often been remarked upon, or if it has, I just haven't heard anybody say it. He's got a world engine. So just think about that. It's for terraforming. He can theoretically terraform any planet he wants into Krypton. So what's to stop him from terraforming the entire planet Earth into Krypton? Well, I think another question to ask is, what's to stop him from terraforming an uninhabited planet into Krypton? Why does it need to be Earth? You know, this entire time, Zod says that everything that he does is for the good of his people. He doesn't have a cruel bone in his body. He's ruthless. He makes no bones about that. But he's not specifically out to hurt anybody. This is what proves him wrong. Whatever, whatever else Zod may have been created to become, he's obviously got a seriously sick demented part of him that's the part of him that prompted him to uh, launch his failed coup on krypton that's the part of him that wants to uh, terraform earth killing billions of completely innocent people so that he can have his little kryptonian paradise he could do that to mars he could he could do that to any other planet in our solar system any other planet in this galaxy any other planet in this universe he wants it to be earth that is sick.
1: It's all just a big revenge thing. He wants to make Jor-El pay.
0: Hmm.
1: He wants to make Kal-El pay. Now, now, now. granted, he came to Earth looking for the Codex. Mm-hmm. So he came to Earth for a reason. But there's nothing saying that he has to use Earth for New Krypton except for, like you said, that mean streak in him. Right. That's the only thing that's making this planet the necessary stopping point.
0: Yeah. And look, the the fact is I'm kind of sick and tired of villains being portrayed as misunderstood. All right? I don't look, there's a time and there's a place for that. And I think you can even do that really well, but I don't I mean, what's wrong with just showing a villain being evil? Okay, what why is that so Unthinkable, you know. And one of the things that works about this is that Zod couches his entire agenda as—I well, I can't say humanitarian, but this Kryptonian <laughs> uh, mission—he wants to rescue his people, restore his his planet. And dude, in and of itself, I mean, look—you could argue, you could take the Jurassic Park argument that nature has selected Krypton to be removed from the equation. But whatever, putting that aside. He could have chosen any other planet to do the job. And he hell he could have, he could have gone back to the Kryptonian solar system and just chosen a different fucking planet well, you know, right next door. The fact that it has to be Earth, that's a very evil thing to do. I mean, I think taking one person's life outside of self-defense, I think of you know taking one person's life, that's a, just a consummately evil thing to do. You're destroying everything that they could ever be to wipe out an entire race of people their not just i mean their lives which point blank that's enough but you're also wiping out their achievements their accomplishments their future their past their present god knows all of this just so you can i'm i'm sorry that i mean that is so inexcusably morally evil that i i it, it, words fail me and this is not a zod that has you know, an agenda that, uh, he's just misunderstood. You know, he's, he's uh, right idea, wrong execution, so to speak. No, I, I, wrong idea, wrong execution. There's just, there's nothing about this guy that's at all redeeming. And, you know, now he, he tries to sell this as this very noble, beneficial thing. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. None of it, none, none of it uh, holds any kind of water at all. If he was really serious about this, the preservation of life, his supposed goal, the last thing he'd want to do is choose a populated planet to, uh, as his foundation. There's just – there's no way. It would be unthinkable to him except for this inborn malice that he can say whatever he wants to the contrary. That's who he is. And uh, anyway, that's just the way I feel about it.
1: No, yeah, that's a great insight. I hadn't really thought about that with him. He uh, – I mean He's ruthless. Whether he's, whether, whether you, um, I want to talk about his cruelty or not, he is ruthless from the get go. Mm-hmm. But, you know, someone can be ruthless in an effort to do good things. It's, it's a, it's a strategy more than a personality trait. But yeah, he, he, he definitely does not need to be doing this here. And, and really it's, we get the impression at the beginning of the film that he and Jor were friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I say impression, we're, we're basically told mm-hmm. they were friends, and Jor says, I'm going to honor the man you once were, not this monster you've become. And when, when Jor calls him a monster, he reacts really strongly. Of course, I think we all would if we got called a monster, but, you know, he reacts really strongly. And I think it's one of those things, And and I, and I you know... Hopefully, there are very few listeners who've had the, the joy and luxury of being raised by a man like this. But there are men out there who just don't see in themselves the problems that they see in other people. Yeah. But that is a really real aspect of humanity that is that can be kind of terrible.
0: I agree. Well, and... I guess from like a uh, from a visual standpoint, this again is maybe one of the most Zack Snyder uh, stylized type of uh, sequences in the movie, because the rest of it, like I said, it's kind of like the Born Identity. It's all very handheld and uh, kind of gritty and realistic. This is a little bit more stylized, and I don't know as I'd want to say comic booky, but it's not lost on me that Superman's outfit in the sequence, you know, once he actually starts wearing it. It's completely black, which it looks cool. I, I don't think I'd want to see that long-term, but it does look cool in this one sequence. And, um, I, I, and you know, actually that kind of leads into something. I don't know if they actually made a black outfit, like a black version of his outfit, or if they just used um, computer trickery to color his regular outfit black. But what, what, whatever it is, it just looks friggin' awesome. And, again, it's probably the most stylized of the, uh, of all sequences in this movie because of the fact that it's a dream and it's all happening Well, not a dream exactly, but it's all in Clark's head. And it's just from a visual standpoint, it's one of the more powerful elements of the film. I really enjoy it. And, um, anyway, so Superman snaps too. And, uh, you know, at this point, pretty much the, uh, the uh, truth is out there. And then from there, Lois is – she gets imprisoned and then installs the AI jor into Zod's ship, which enables Lois and Superman ultimately to escape. But before doing so, Lois's escape pod gets fucked up, and it's up to Superman to kind of save the day. And then we get, I think, the last mate, like, overt piece of uh, Christian symbolism in this movie where Superman sort of eases out of the hole in the ship and he has his arms sort of outspread in a, in a crucifix position. Right after jor tells Superman that you can save everybody. And this is actually mm. sort of counterintuitive to what a lot of people think Superman's ultimate... Highest moral lesson is that he can't save everybody. Here we've got Jarrell telling him the opposite. Look at the world and look specifically at Lois. It's in your power to save all of them. Implicit in that is that, you know, this is part of your mission. But the other part of it is, if saving them means sacrificing the chance for Krypton to be reborn... I assume that's the reason Jarrell encoded all of the uh, basically the uh, codex into Clark's DNA into his skin cells. I assume that was an agenda that Jarrell might have been friendly to in the right circumstances. These well, yeah, are... he, he,
1: he says that he want he wanted Clark to understand what it meant to be human, mm-hmm. but then to bring about a union of their two peoples. Mm-hmm. That's his reason for being.
0: Mm-hmm. And what I took from that scene was if saving them means closing the door on krypton it's Soviet. an easy choice to make you know and um superman at least superficially he's comfortable making that decision it'll be later in the movie before we kind of get an idea of what that really means to him in the moment he seems okay with it cuz i don't think he's really thought it through he just Kind of rolls with it. And as I say, he has that moment where he sort of glides out of the hole and he does the uh, crucifix position for just a moment. It's not that heavy handed. And in fact, I don't recall seeing really anybody else except me talk about it. And I, that's strange because I have to assume other people would have noticed it too, but there it is. And that, I think, would be a convenient place to pause. Now, uh, you fiend! <laughs> This is obviously a lot more than John originally bargained for. So, first of all, I'd just like to thank you for uh, giving me what's shaping up to be, like very quickly shaping up to be uh, three hours. It may even be more than that. But thank you very much. I really appreciate you, you know, giving me so much of your time. And also, um, uh, you know, before we, you know, call it a day, uh, why don't you tell everybody, you know, where they can find you?
1: Well, um, one of the quirks to your recording schedule is that where I am right now might not necessarily be where I am some time from now, but probably where I'm going to be is the same place I've been for a while, which is that my daughter and I do a podcast about the Avengers comics from the 60s. Are um, with the conceit that if uh, if a character appears in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we are going to talk about their original comics and work our way slowly forward through the 1960s. Um, along the way, we have also been doing a Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch of all the films and television episodes sure and doing doing brief discussions about those along the way. So that's been lots of fun um there are a couple other irons in the fire that i've been thinking about doing i'm just not going to mention them right now because i'm not when i started to do them last night i just wasn't feeling it so yeah. i don't even know if i'm gonna do it now but um but yeah avengers inspirations is definitely a podcast that i enjoy doing that i would like for you to check out and that is available at the complete marble reading order website which you can do a google search for and click under the podcasts tab
0: excellent all right, well, uh, John, thank you again uh, for joining in with me. I got to tell you, man, the um, the fact of the matter is, every time you and I talk about Superman, it always ends up going a lot longer than I originally intended. So, first off, I just want to apologize, but also I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, join in with me, giving me what's like I say, shaping up to be three hours of your time, when you originally only agreed to just one hour. It's really cool of you to do that. And so um, now, as to next week obviously uh john and i we're gonna finish our conversation regarding man of steel and then the second segment of that episode and i don't care how long that episode ends up being the second episode of that episode is actually going to be uh our thoughts and recollections and whatnot concerning uh batman v superman dawn of justice and so that is pretty much that so bye everybody i will see you next week Pretty much. so I think that's just about the end of that Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network you can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E F-R-E-A-K-S you can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know you can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality as a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Manzacor of Milan, Italy.